0: Would you turn with me to John chapter 11? It's on page 897 in your pew Bible. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go.
1: The other resurrection story in the Gospel of John. It's a story that ends well, as we just heard. And yet, along the way, we see many statements that capture the intensity that fill out the meaning of this miracle. Listen to just a couple of them with me. Lazarus has died. Verse 14. Verse 21. If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 16. Thomas saying, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 26, Jesus saying to Martha, do you believe this? And verse 35, Jesus wept. And at the beginning of this event, Jesus tells us the purpose of it all. Look with me at verse 4. He says plainly, this illness does not lead to death, at least not eternal death, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The glory of God. This happened for the glory of God. That abstract idea that is often misunderstood or diminished of our Heavenly Father. Yet when the glory of God is spoken about in the Bible... Men and women fall on their faces in front of him. They break out in spontaneous song before him. They recognize their inadequacy in light of his eternal greatness. They even yield everything they have and everything that they are to him. This event is about displaying the glory of God. And there are many pieces of it that give us little glimpses of glory along the way. And there's one final result in it. That the glory of God is displayed in the resurrection of sinners. Consider with me some of these glimpses of his glory along the way. The first we see is that there is glory, a glimpse of God's glory anyway, in the timing of this event. Jesus learns of the illness of his good friend Lazarus. He's not a mere acquaintance. He knows him and his family well. And despite the fact that the relationship is one that's meaningful, when the word comes to him that his friend is ill, Jesus chooses to remain two days longer. Bethany was only less than a day's walk from where he was. And you know what that feels like. We have that in our family right now. Somebody we love is ill. He's moving toward death. And so tomorrow my wife will get in a car and go visit her grandfather one final time. When somebody you love is moving toward death, you drop everything you have and you go to see them. But Jesus stays. And as verse 5 and 6 point to us, he didn't stay out of indifference says that Jesus loved Martha. He loved her sister, and he loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Curious. He delayed his going out of love for them. And that points in some way to his specific timing. You can almost feel the tension, though, can't you? When he arrives... Two days later, Martha makes the statement that every single one of us would make. Verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And for reasons... You might imagine Mary didn't even come out to greet him. She stayed in the family house. Jesus made his way from the outskirts of the village where he spoke to Martha toward the center of the village where he eventually called for Mary. And when Mary saw him for the first time, her response was the exact same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. How many times have you asked that question or made that statement to God? Where were you? I needed you the most on this one. And I didn't find you. Where were you when I failed that test in school? If only you were here when my dog ran out into the middle of the road. If only you were here when my spouse left me. If only you were here when my family member died. The tension, the emotion of the moment is something that every one of us can relate to. And yet we see here that there's a purpose. And in fact, God always has a purpose, whether we can see it or not, even when we can feel it or not, even when we understand it or not. And the purpose here in verse 4 is that the glory of God might be shown and that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Not only do we see a glimpse of God's glory in his timing of this event, but we also see the unique relationship between the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. This is for the glory of God and that the Son might be glorified through it. It's important for us to know that as we go through life and as our friends and neighbors go through life, God's glory cannot be pulled apart from the glory of his Son. They're actually inextricably linked. When one gets glory, the other one does as well. We see this again and again in the Gospel of John. John 13, 31, Jesus had gone out and he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Later in John 14, he said, Whatever you ask of my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus' glory is bound to the glory of his Father, and we see a glimpse of that here in the timing of this event. We see another glimpse of his glory, and this is shown in the opportunity for belief. To this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been sharing with people who he is through a number of I am statements. One of the things I love about John is that there are these threads that go through the whole book, and we'll touch on three of them today, but one of them is these I am statements that this series is based on. John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 9, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And now, as he works his way through the village, and he speaks to Martha, and she bemoans to him, if only you were here, now he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. When confronted with intense grief of death, He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? The opportunity for belief gives us a glimpse into God's glory. This is something that he doesn't have to do, but he does for us. Again and again and again, when God shows us who he is and what he's doing, he calls for a response of belief, of trust, of commitment to him. These words are... Nearly synonymous in certain ways. Years ago, a man named Monroe Parker was traveling through South Alabama on one of those hot, sultry Alabama afternoons. And he stopped at a watermelon stand to purchase a watermelon. And he asked the proprietor, well, how much do the watermelons cost? And the man said, they'll be $1.10. $1.10. He walked, He reached into his pocket. He pulled out one dollar bill, and after fiddling around a little bit more, he said, I only have a dollar. And the guy said, well, that's okay. I'll trust you for it. And so Parker put the dollar back in his pocket, and he picked up a watermelon and began to walk away, to which the man replied, hey, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to go sit down and eat my watermelon. He said, well, you didn't give me your dollar. So said, oh, you told me you'd trust me for it. "So said, well, I meant I'd trust you for the 10 cents. Mac, Parker said, you weren't willing to trust me at all. <laughs> you were willing to take a gamble, a 10-cent gamble on my integrity. And I think many of us go through life with that approach to our trust or belief or faith in God. We're willing to take a 10-cent gamble that maybe he's good. Maybe he's true. Maybe he's righteous. But when you think about this situation for Martha, when it all comes down to life and death, there's no such option. You're either all in or you're all out. Jesus stands in front of her and claims, I am the resurrection and the life, and her brother is dead in the grave right over there. There's no 10-cent gamble that's about to happen. You are all in or you are all out and he leans into her and says do you believe this this is the question that goes before all of us really isn't it and though you may be willing to function in life in some way by merely taking a 10-cent gamble on God, when it comes down to the most important things of life and death and eternity, complete belief or trust is what is required. And the fact that Jesus calls us to believe, even though He doesn't have to, gives us a glimpse a glimpse of His care, His concern, His love, and certainly His glory. But we see another glimpse. We see a glimpse of glory in Jesus' weeping. Follow the story. Lazarus is dead. Jesus enters the village. Martha meets him on the outskirts, and they talk, and they have this interaction where Jesus tells her who he is one more time. She professes her belief, and as he makes his way toward the center of the village, he goes and he speaks with Mary, and she gives the same anguishing complaint, Lord, if only you were here! And they moved to the tomb where people have now gathered and are weeping and wailing. It's a scene in which the family members are enmeshed in grief. It's a scene in which people have come some hours from Jerusalem because they knew the family and they're grieving with them. And it's a scene in which Common to Jewish custom, there were probably professional mourners at the ceremony. Those to aid in the wailing, if you will. And upon seeing this whole scene, we're struck with this reality in verse 35 Jesus wept. What would make the Son of God, the one who came out of eternity into finite existence, the one who sees all and knows all, who's infinitely wise and powerful, what would make this one have such an emotional outpouring as to weep? When we look down at the text, we see in verse 33, Jesus saw her weeping, he saw the Jews also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The nuance of being deeply moved here is one, not just of emotionally stirred, but emotionally stirred to anger. It's a word that's used for snorting horses. It's frustration and pent-up anger all coming out. To be deeply troubled is the accompanying sadness that comes with the situation. So he's observing what's happening. And you might tend to think that maybe he's weeping because his friend is dead, but that doesn't make any sense. He's right about to raise him from the dead. (laughs) He's not sad that Lazarus is gone. He's looking at the situation, and he's saying, this angers me, and it grieves me. What is he angered about? What is he grieving about? I think it's fair to say that he's angered about looking at the chaos of what's going on around him. He's angered that sin has ultimately led to death. He's angered that sorrow is being witnessed by him and it's a disturbing reality and it's rooted in the fact that things are not the way they are supposed to be. This isn't supposed to be happening. If anybody knows this to be true, it's the one who stands outside of space and time, who created all things in perfection, and is now on the ground feeling and witnessing grief that comes from sin, which leads to death. And that's accompanied or compounded by the fact that those grieving around him are grieving like people who have no hope. And this type of grief ultimately points to their unbelief. Friends, it's easy to think that God's love for the world and that his love for you is some type of distant or emotionalist reality. But here, the consequences of sin and the unbelief of sinners Together, stir up in him anger and sadness. This is what we call God's loving disposition toward humanity, his affections for us. This is why Jesus weeps and mourns over Jerusalem because of the rebellion. This is why the prophet Ezekiel says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. This is why the New Testament apostles write that God does not want any to perish, even though he allows those same people to perish, because He's grieved. (laughs) He grieves our sin that we take so lightly. The things that I think and that I do that I just easily brush off on a daily basis. And the fact that I take my sin so lightly and that God grieves it so significantly clearly highlights the fact that I don't completely understand how deep the offense against him really is. And by the way, this is a sign of your maturing in your walk with the Lord. Those who grow toward maturity are those who see God more clearly and as a result see their sin more deeply and are grieved by it. He is grieved by the unbelief of people. I mean, Lazarus is dead. They're weeping and laying on like nothing can be done, and there he is standing right in their very midst. And none of them get it. Except for Martha, to an extent. And the failure to recognize who he is and what he's capable of brings him to sadness. And his grief results in weeping. His grief points to his love, which gives us just a glimpse of his glory. So as you walk through the story, you can see a glimpse of God's glory in the timing of the events. You can see a glimpse of God's glory in the opportunity for belief. You even see a glimpse in Jesus' weeping. But now we come to a more comprehensive display because the glory of God here is displayed in the resurrection of sinners. Follow it with me. Verse 4, we see the beginning. We've talked about it twice already. This event happened. It will not lead to death, or at least permanent death, he says, but it is for the glory of God. That's why this happened. And then Jesus comes late to the party. Lazarus is dead. He arrives at the edge of the village. He talks to Martha. He reveals who he is. He goes in. He talks to Mary. He weeps among them. And fast forward all the way to verse 40, when he's standing tombside, and he says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And after praying to God in their midst so they can all hear him, he calls out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out. His face wrapped in the death shroud. His hands and feet bound. A clear picture of all humanity that are subject to living in this kingdom of death. But Jesus initiates resurrection. He calls him out by his voice. He comes out of the darkness of the tomb into the light of day to experience true and lasting freedom for the very first time since his death. Resurrection, as Jesus says, unbind him, and he's unbound. Lazarus is not a picture of one man in an instance. He's a picture of all humanity. Jesus' actions toward Lazarus, not just pointing to one-time physical resurrection, but it's pointing to physical and spiritual resurrection for all who believe in him. The glory of God is displayed in the resurrection of sinners. And as is true of all miracles, and Philip touched on this last week, all the signs of Jesus are meant to point us to his word. And so we see another one of these threads that rolls through the Gospel of John. John 4, Jesus gives the water of life. John 6:27 Jesus is bread from heaven. But then he goes on to say that he is himself the bread of life. John 8:12 he gives the light of life. He's giving life, he's giving life, he's giving life, he's giving life. And now he says, "I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life." But he goes on, "Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in that expression, he takes Martha and he moves her. And he moves us. He moves us from some sort of distant hope that the resurrection is something going to happen in the future... And he points us to the reality that the resurrection of Jesus, that one that he offers, has already begun in the lives of those who believe. I don't want you to miss that. The resurrection that Jesus offers has already begun in the lives of those who believe. John 5.25 points us to this. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you that an hour is coming and is now here, When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Yes, the hour's coming. We have hope in a future resurrection from the dead and eternal life in Jesus. We celebrate this all the time in the life of our church. But the hour's also here, that you were dead (laughs) spiritually, and now you've been resurrected. And as such, spiritually, you will never die. The glory of God is displayed in the resurrection of sinners. And so when you believe in him, when you trust in him, not just take a 10-cent gamble, but when you really say, Lord, I believe that you forgive sins, that you bring me to new life, that you preserve me forever. The phrase or the expression, Jesus is my life, is not an expression that we simply reserve for High schoolers who are on a spiritual high coming off of a youth retreat. We might often think that way. But to say Jesus is my life is completely accurate. How could he not be your life? As sure as the air that you breathe keeps you upright is your life, Jesus is your life. And so the idea of half-hearted Christians seems impossible. He's your life. How can you be half-hearted about your life? The idea of those who are apathetic or spiritually indifferent to him but still claim to believe seems absurd. I mean, are you indifferent to the air that you are breathing right now? Stop breathing for 60 seconds and tell me if you're indifferent. And those who live contrary to his ways for extended periods of time but still somehow verbally claim him to be their Lord... They're rebelling against their own well-being, against their own life. Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, fear and doubt still enter our minds. And yes, we're not yet perfected. But when it all comes to it, there's one person that provides resurrection. And there's only one person who is our life, Jesus. And so what I think and what I do and how I live, what my priorities are, are all in a response to the one who I'm found in the one who's doing a resurrection work in me, the one who is my life. And the glory of God is displayed in the resurrection of sinners, which means that the glory of God is displayed in you if you Believe. And that belief changes everything. For those of us who do believe, we see that the challenge for us then is not just to believe half heartedly, but to have a life that flows out of this one who is our resurrection and our life. And we stumble along those lines, don't we? For those who have not yet professed belief, we see that this is the only way that God sets for us to be with him. And so the penetrating question that Jesus asks Martha in verse 25 is the penetrating question for us. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father God, we point to the resurrection of your son which is foretold in this story. And we see of the wonders and the majesty and the power that it contains. We look to the challenge that Jesus sets before all who witnessed the raising of Lazarus. And we stand in awe. And for those of us, God, who profess belief. (laughs) And yet, again and again, we ask, where were you? If only you were here. Or my belief only leads me in certain ways, but not others. God, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. That you would be ever strengthening our trust in you for eternity and for today. And for those among us, Lord, who have not yet believed but desire to make that expression of faith today, Father, I pray that you would hear their prayers as they confess their sin to you, as they ask for forgiveness and put their trust in this one who is the resurrection and the life. We know that you will, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.